welcome, as you all know, for the past eight months since we've been holding these programs through the City Club of Idaho Falls that on occasion we have examined some controversial issues. We have brought an edge to some of the issues facing our local region, the state, and the nation. And that's why today we decided to depart and take up the non-controversial issue of water rights. <laughs> Just to have a bit of a break at any rate. It's a pleasure to, to have Mr. David Tuthill with us here today the director of the Idaho Department of Water Resources. As many of you may know, he was appointed to that post in January of 2007 by Governor Butch Otter. He had spent many years preparing for that position, including his educational background. In 1974, he earned a Bachelor of Science in Agricultural Engineering at Colorado State University. A year later, he earned a Master's in Civil Engineering from the University of Colorado. And then in 2002, he completed studies for his doctorate, which he earned from the University of Idaho in civil engineering. He has been with the department since 1976. And in that long period of service to the state, he's held a variety of positions. Uh, of the, the more important issues that he has tackled in a variety of positions, he has, for example, in his capacity as adjudication supervisor, dealt with issues such as reviewing applications for water permits, supervising and analyzing the claims for uh, decreed rights, analyzing the uh, disputes over water rights, and of course supervising statewide the distribution of water. Among his many duties, he was also supervisor for the Snake River adjudication, which lasted 10 years, involved more than 10,000 claims to water rights and covered more than 3,200 square miles. No small chore, as you know. He's a man who served his country in the military for 30 years. He was a, a commissioned officer. He retired in 2004 as a colonel in the Corps of Engineers in the Army Reserves and he is a member of numerous professional organizations, and we're very pleased to have David Tuthill. Please welcome him to the podium. Thank you very much, David, for the kind introduction, and I'm just uh, thrilled to be here to speak with this group about water. And uh, it is most pleasurable to see a, uh, a field full of snow as we look out at the uh, plains of Idaho uh, flying over this morning, it was just a beautiful morning, and I'm just uh, thrilled to see the, the water in the system. Uh, I do have a military background, and as you'll see, my family doesn't know that I really got all of the information from that. But first, before I get into that, I'd like to uh, thank Mark for the invitation uh, to come to uh, speak with the City Club. I'd like to say that Eastern Idaho is an important location for water. Uh, that's why I came over today, and we have a number of other meetings in addition uh, to this meeting, because there's a lot going on. You all are very well represented in eastern Idaho in water issues, both technically, and I see members of the Idaho Water Resources Research Institute here today. Uh, that's a very important uh, area. The Water District 01 that delivers water here is a very important organization. And eastern Idaho is important for water in the state. Matthew Evans wrote a primer. Uh, for the Idaho Falls Post Register that some of you might have seen earlier this week. It was well done. It's a nice little briefing on some of the water right issues, and some of what I'll cover today relates to that. First, I'd like to give you just a little brief introduction about uh, this past year for me. Uh, as David mentioned, I uh, did start this particular job early in 2007. It was an interesting and challenging year and a fascinating year, but I kind of saw how other people look at it at Christmas time. I was... Uh, sitting around with my family at the Christmas table, or at Christmas tree, and we were opening gifts, and I opened a small book uh, from my daughters, and was kind of curious about what this was, and as I opened it, I, I realized that I think they might have been sending me a message about uh, my past year and perhaps a need for additional training, uh, because the book is entitled, and this is no kidding, this is a true story, Leadership Secrets of Attila the Hun. <laughs> So somehow the military training and my background uh, uh, with water resources didn't quite do the trick, so they thought I might need some additional tools for 2008. And 
And uh, being a student of history, I, I was quite fascinated to read about Attila, read the book and study up, up about him, and, and he was quite a guy. He, uh, he grew up at a time when the Huns basically worked as tribes, and they didn't have much power. They, well, they were, uh, when they got together here and there, they, they had some power. In fact, the Great Wall of China was built in part to keep the Huns out on, on the Chinese side, but they ranged all the way over to Italy, and he was from Hungary, and as a young man, grew up in, uh, in part in Rome. There was a swap between Rome and, and the various outlying countries where the Romans thought, we'll send a young person to that country and swap and find out about our potential enemies in that way. So Attila spent some time in Rome uh, when he was 12 years old, came back and told his buddies as he was growing up, you know, uh, he said, and this is a likeness of him from the 16th century, he said, uh, you know, if we get together and work together, we Huns can take on the Romans, and we th I think if we work together, we can beat them. And sure enough, he put together an army, and they went out, and, and in his only defeat, he, he actually warred against the young man that had swapped for him and had lived in his uh, hometown who knew about the Huns, so he lost in that battle, lost between 160 and 330,000 people, came back, retooled, went out again, never was beaten again. So he was quite a guy, but here's the bottom line from what I got from that. If the members of the water user community, and we have, a, we have many factions in water users, if we work together, we can do amazing things. And that's really the theme of my talk today. I would like to say uh, really four elements as we're going through this afternoon. I'd like to discuss the problem that we're facing just generally the situation in one aquifer, that's the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer that we're privileged to be a part of uh, right here in this location. Talk about some solution options and then an approach that we're using. And then I, I'm quite interested to hear what the questions are, so we'll delve into some other areas. Uh, here's the problem, really. The adequacy of Idaho's water supply infrastructure is diminishing. Uh, last uh, century, we had a full glass, I would submit to you. Uh, Fifty years ago, we were in good shape. We had enough reservoir storage for good carryover. We could survive several years of drought pretty well. The water users in a hundred years ago did a nice job of looking, surveying the land in the Upper Snake Basin. They built four million acre feet of storage, very important storage projects that really provided for irrigation, hydropower, and flood protection. Those are really the reasons that the storage reservoirs were built. And they did a nice job of it. But as we look at our situation today, I would submit to you that the glass is no longer full. Uh, why is that? And there really are four very important drivers. First of all, uh, uh, and as a background, we still have all of the 20th century needs. Those haven't diminished. But in addition, we have endangered species requirements. For example, last year in 2007, the Snake River Basin sent downstream for anadromous fishery needs almost a half million acre feet in a year where the, ga the gauge at high sea uh, upstream here uh, showed that we had about a 66% runoff year. Last year was a drought year. Nevertheless, we sent down a half million acre feet. Was that water important? Yes, it's been deemed to be important. It's set up by agreement. It was hard fought. It's part of the Nez Perce uh, Treaty. We did receive some protection in sending that water down, so it's an important aspect, but it is a huge drain on the water supplies. Uh, secondly, we have increased urbanization. Uh, we all recognize and enjoy the, the benefits of a growing economy. That has an impact in terms of water requirement. Uh, third, and very importantly, and we'll, we'll discuss this, we now know that when a well is pumped, it affects surface water sometime, somewhere. Uh, what's difficult is determining the timing and location of that impact, but pumping from a well is going to affect surface water. Fifty years ago, we really didn't plan on this. This was before the high lift pumping. We have about a million acres irrigated from groundwater in the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer alone. That uh, requirement for, the, for that irrigation is two million acre feet, and some states look at that as their total supply for their state. It's a huge amount of water. It's been very important to our economy. We want to keep it going, but that does drain the supplies. We have to accommodate for that. And the fourth item and the fourth primary driver I would submit could trump all of the other drivers as we're looking at this year. We're seeing more and more about this climate change. The, uh, the timing is being affected of our snowfall and rainfall to a large extent, we feel. Worldwide scientists have concluded that, yes, there is climate change, 
there's some debate on, on man's involvement with that and, and what the ramifications are. But scientifically, it's been accepted around the world that we are in the middle of climate change, and I would submit that we're actually seeing that in Idaho at this point. So we, when we look at our glass now, we're either perhaps half empty. Uh, some say that the glass is half full. What do we do about this? Here's a proposal. We take a look at the system that we have here, and we are blessed in Idaho with a huge amount of water that flows out of the state. Uh, if we look every decade, uh, there's a lot of water that flows out. Maybe we should work on improving our infrastructure to make sure the glass uh, comes up to completely full for this century, this 21st century. So that imparts a burden on all of us in the room, not just the groundwater and surface water users, but the full community because we all enjoy Idaho's water. So here's a, an example. Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer, and many of you have seen this picture. Uh, we're in the upper reaches of this aquifer right now. In fact, uh, our understanding of this aquifer is that the headwaters, of, uh, which are tributary headwaters coming from locations like Big Lost River, Little Lost River, this area, water's flowing from generally from the northeast to the southwest through the aquifer and comes out at the end as in the Thousand Springs area. Those springs originally flowed, we think, about 4,000 cubic feet per second. That's a lot of water back in, uh, at, the, at the turn of the last century, about the 1900s. The flows increased to about 6,500 cubic feet per second. Now they're a little over 5,000 cubic feet per second. So they're above the historic levels, but they're not as, as great as the uh, levels in the 50s. So this has caused a concern. In addition, there are other areas of concern. I'd like to tell you a little bit about where we're at with those, and uh, we might delve into these a little bit more with the questions. We received calls to the water back in 2005. Over the last uh, 20 years, there have been many negotiations between surface water and groundwater users. That resulted in, through 2004, we had temporary solutions. The solution never really answered all the questions. Uh, as 2005 initiated, <coughs> excuse me, we had some frustration by the Surface Water Coalition. That's seven large organizations, canal companies, and irrigation districts. They filed a call to water. That's a request to the department to start delivering water. And really what they were asking is that we shut down junior groundwater rights. Uh, by junior, that's later in time. And in Idaho, first in time is first in right. The older rights are delivered first. The status of this particular call right now is that a hearing is being held as we speak. Uh, former Supreme Court Chief Justice Gerald Schroeder is the hearing officer. Of all the things that happened in 2007, that was a real winner. And uh, the state was very fortunate when on July 31st, he stepped down as Supreme Court Justice. On August 1st, he signed a contract with us. His uh, comment about signing that contract as we spoke with him about it is, is he enjoys water, he was interested, he was completing his career with the Supreme Court, and he said, you know, I only have one concern about being the hearing officer. He said, I think I'm pretty well thought of right now. And, we, and those of us, uh, Clive Strong and I said, we know what you mean, Judge. But he went ahead and signed it. He's the hearing officer. He's doing a great job. We, uh, this hearing is expected to last about three more weeks. He completes his report, submits it to me uh, as director. Uh, first, it, it is out for reconsideration. Uh, the parties might ask for some changes. It's my uh, responsibility as the director to issue a final order that is subject to appeal to the district court, ultimately the Supreme Court in the state. <coughs> Significantly, this call is a call of a river right, or several river rights, to groundwater. It's a river to groundwater call. In addition, we had some other calls back in 2005 down in the Thousand Springs area where various spring owners that have these springs for which the flow has declined made a call to the department. And in two cases, the director at that time, Carl Dreher, found that there was what, he, what is termed material injury. So he required compensation or mitigation of some kind or curtailment by the wells deemed to have an impact there. And, in, and that order was appealed. The hearing has been held on that order. The judge's decision has been submitted. And now this particular one, particular decision is out for reconsideration. I would say that generally the judge's decision mirrors the former director's determination very closely. Now the third area, and, and by the way, that's an area where the, it's a spring to groundwater call. The law is different between a river to groundwater and a spring to groundwater. And the third area is with A and B irrigation district. As you know, that's a large irrigation district in the Rupert area. 
They have experienced difficulty obtaining water through their wells. They also made a call back in 1994. There was a temporary solution in 1995 that's been reopened in 2007, and we're preparing a report on that. A hearing is set for later this spring on this particular call, and it's different because it's a groundwater-to-groundwater call where senior wells are asking for some assistance or compensation by the more junior wells. So that's the situation we have in the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer. And I would call that a very challenging situation. And the law that's happening here in Idaho with this aquifer is I would submit second in the, in the, in the United States in this. Uh, Colorado is a little bit ahead of us. They've made determinations on, on this joint use between surface and groundwater some years ago. They've had struggles. The, the state that is next up is Idaho. Other western states are looking at us to see how we handle this challenge. One of the ways we're handling the challenge is by notifying in advance water users that could potentially be curtailed. In October of last year, I sent out letters to more than 2,700 water users in the areas that are described in the map here. For those that can't see the map, uh, this map extends all the way from the lower southwestern tip of the uh, of the aquifer all the way up to in the in the vicinity of the Idaho Falls area extending north, north into the Dubois area so it's almost the entire acre entire aquifer that could be affected by curtailment orders this year in 2008 as we were looking at the situation in October we determined that if we had a back to back 2007 and then a year like 1977 the diminishment in in flow availability would require a curtailment or a, or a stopping of irrigating of up to 850,000 acres for this year. If the year in 2008 would be like the year 2007, the curtailment could be about 500,000 acres. But if we have a runoff that's about 105% of average, then we could fully satisfy the Surface Water Coalition call. That's related to the river to groundwater call. Relative to the Thousand Springs calls, those flows don't change as much. So it's more difficult to satisfy those calls. I'll not get into that today. That's a little bit further down the aquifer. But if you have questions, we can talk about that. Primarily for this area, the call that would affect up to the Idaho Falls area is the, surf, is the river water to groundwater call issued by the Surface Water Coalition. So what are solution options to this very difficult and challenging task? One very bright spot in this is the process for planning that was initiated in 2006 as an initial draft framework and was really formulated in early 2007 in establishing a comprehensive aquifer management program plan advisory committee. This committee was populated with a variety of groups from water users who, had, who, was, who have been involved for many years, but also municipalities, counties, environmentalists, developers, Domestic users and agencies are all represented around the table in this very effective group. There's a report that's due from this group to the Idaho Water Resource Board by December of 2008. An interim report has been prepared and drafted. It will be submitted to the legislature probably in a couple of weeks. It was briefed yesterday to the Idaho Water Resource Board. Very important report. It's, uh, it really provides a board that's much broader in terms of representation than the than the normal situation that we've had historically where it's just groundwater users and surface water users. At this point, with all of these other groups involved, we expect a much better opportunity for participation and solution. Some of the members that have participated in this board are here today in this advisory committee. Additional potential solutions. Fallowing of ground is a potential solution if too many groundwater acres are irrigated. There is a federal program called the CREP, Conservation Reserve Enhancement Program, that is, provides for a federal payment if land is uh, uh, made to go fallow. Alternatively, if there's a requirement for curtailment that's not met, there could conceivably be a mandatory curtailment of some land. The aquifer recharge issues are, provide great opportunity for additional enhancement of the aquifer. We have incidental recharge throughout the basin where water leaks from canals and from fields. In addition, we're looking at managed recharge where water spread back out to provide additional flows from the springs. There's a group that has been formed called the Eastern Idaho Water Rights Coalition, which has been effectively looking at the recharge issue to provide solutions 
This is an important group from the Idaho Falls area that we look to be being a continuing asset in providing solutions. And in addition, what about some additional storage? We have a lot of water leaving the state. What if we do add to the storage? There are really two areas where we can store, above ground and below ground. Many of you know that the governor has proposed a $20 million study over the period of the next several years. This $20 million would be allocated to a uh, use of one-time funds to put with the Water Resource Board to study aquifers around the state. These aquifers include not only the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer, but other aquifers. Some of you uh, uh, might live in, for example, the Teton Aquifers included in this series of aquifers that, that are intended to be studied. One of the things that we'll study as a part of this process, if it proceeds, is to look at potential for underground storage and around the nation that sometimes is the most cost-effective place to store water. In addition, there are some potential sites for surface water. I have a non-controversial one for you to, to uh, suggest. How about the Teton Dam? <clears throat> Teton Dam is, has been uh, mentioned as a, it's a dam where we at one time found there was water back in the 70s. The environmental concerns were met. The uh, government acquired the ground. Uh, the dam was built. Of course, uh, almost everybody here probably knows that the dam broke in 1976. Should we rebuild this dam? We don't know, but we need to open up the book and dust off things under, two, under 21st century realities and see if we should reconsider it. That's one possible location. Another possible, and these are just potential sites. The Minidoka Dam has been discussed as a good site uh, to enlarge Minidoka Dam, maybe add 50,000 acre feet, maybe Twin Springs Dam in the Boise Valley, maybe the Galloway Project in, in uh, the Weezer Basin. What do these projects have to do with Idaho Falls? Well, if the Galloway is built at perhaps 900,000 acre feet, some of the water that's presently being sent down from this area for endangered species perhaps could be sent down from Galloway and allow some of the water to stay up higher in the system. And not all of the projects are large projects. There's a small one down in Lost Valley in the Weezer Basin that we're looking at potential for. The idea here is these aren't the selected, the final selection of projects around the state, but as a state we need to be looking at potential surface water storage projects for the 21st century. Let's take a look and see if some are feasible. Our approach is this. It's really threefold. One is to continue to administer surface and groundwater jointly. We know now that a well impacts surface water. We're recognizing that technically, legally, administratively. That's here to stay, so we have to deal with it. Secondly, we need to work more on planning for the future. We've administered what we had in the past. Now that most of the water rights in the state have been adjudicated, we know what those are. They've been court determined. So now we can administer rights, but we need to plan for the future, both with our agency and the Idaho Water Resource Board, which is renewing its plan uh, in a 21st century mode. And thirdly, if we are to seek federal assistance on any projects, we recognize that we're going to have to work with other states. We have, of course, two senators and two congressmen. That uh, doesn't provide a whole lot of clout. If we look at the clout for the Northwest with eight senators and 18 congressmen, we'll have more clout. We are members of the Western States Water Council. We'll be back in March in Washington, D.C. We coordinate with our other sister states to see if we have mutually acceptable projects to uh, endorse. So with that, it's my pleasure to give you this brief background. Uh, I certainly stand for questions. It's been great to be here today. Thank you for the invite. Well, thank you very much, David, for that wonderful presentation. I want to remind you all now to feel comfortable in submitting your questions. We have runners who will pick them up and bring them forward to the states. I also want to remind you that the City Club of Idaho Falls enjoys the generous sponsorship of the Idaho Humanities Council. We appreciate that. And this young man to my right on the radio is from KISU, which is the voice of the Idaho Falls City Club. So we'll proceed with some questions, and we've got a lot of interest here today. Many people in, in this region, Mr. Tuthill, have invested millions of dollars in landscaping, lawns, gardens, flowers, trees. Will the Idaho Department of Water Resources turn off water here in Idaho Falls this summer and destroy these landscaping efforts? Thanks, David, for uh, giving me a softball for the first one. <clears throat> The answer is 
what the Department of Water Resources will do in response to the calls this summer will be based on our understanding of the law and our understanding of not only the case law but the statutory law at the time. So as we faced the situation last year, uh, I did send out curtailment orders which had certain timeframes providing for an opportunity for what we call mitigation or providing an alternative to shutting off wells. Last year, in 2007, sufficient mitigation was provided so we could avoid curtailment. In 2008, my expectation is we'll be facing this year with largely the same understanding as we had last year, except incorporating the understanding gained by the hearing officer in the present hearings. Because the hearing officer found largely, as the director did with the Thousand Springs hearing, uh, it will be interesting to see what differences are found with the hearing that's ongoing right now, which is the one that would impact you more, which is the river water to groundwater call. For this coming year, my expectation is, it, is that the likelihood of curtailment depends very much on the snowpack. If we have a little bit above average snowpack, the likelihood of curtailment is low, and so far we are a little above average, I'm thankful to say. Next month has great importance, though, the next two months, so it's too early to call on what the snowpack will be. So for this coming year, if there is an above-average snowpack and above-average runoff, my expectation is there will be no curtailment, and we'll go through the process of the court review of these orders. If the moisture opportunity shuts off and if we have a very dry rest of the spring, we are faced with a carryover of below-average reservoir contents, and there could potentially be a cutoff of some of the more junior water rights. So each municipality is different. Most municipalities have some water rights that are more senior, maybe 1940s and 50s from groundwater, and maybe some more junior, maybe 1980s. There's a chance that some of the more junior rights could be curtailed, in which case the municipality would have to administer the senior uh, groundwater rights using those for, uh, as they uh, provide for the various uses while curtailing the more junior rights. So there is a chance that there could be a shortfall in the amount of water available to the municipalities. Good. Thank you. In a, in a related question, uh, will you please give us your, quote, longer list of mitigation efforts that municipalities should undertake so that they can have a solid position should water calls be made in the future? Yes, thank you. As far as a longer list. Many other things are being done uh, by the municipalities. For example, uh, municipalities are looking at potential agreements whereby the municipalities purchase water rights or storage water for mitigation of their municipalities. In the western United States, the truth is that the municipalities can afford to pay more water per acre foot than the irrigator. That's why we see Las Vegas growing so rapidly they have about 2 million people that are being provided water right now in a very dry area. They're going out and buying up water. So for municipalities, the truth is that over time, municipalities will obtain additional water supplies. The storage water that we're looking at is really to provide for the long term of irrigation water and the other uses that can't afford to pay as much per acre foot. If, so for storage opportunities, those are primarily to maintain a diverse economy that includes agriculture as well as the, as the industrial municipal types of uses. Thank you. Given the growing water demands in this area, including Ammon, Idaho Falls, and Shelley, what solutions do you see for the rapid, rapidly growing areas that need new wells to sustain this growth? Well, we just talked about one solution last week that is a very creative solution whereby the city of Shelley, for example, is working with its local irrigation district and with local water users to look at the potential for growing in a scenario where they have just a brand new water right application that's been filed. It's been protested by downstream water users who are concerned about an additional well. So they're looking at alternative sorts of mitigation by combining efforts between the municipality and the local irrigation district. Our, ex our experience thus far is the approval process is pretty cumbersome. So as we look at normal channels of approval, that can be difficult. 
So we're looking at alternative ways to approve a project like that to the extent that the water right does not expand or enlarge. We're looking at some pilot projects to enable municipalities to continue to grow while not enlarging the water rights. Okay, thank you. While new grant groundwater appropriations require mitigation, businesses drill wells under the domestic exemption, which is 2,500 gallons per day. In your opinion, will the department start to measure those withdrawals to ensure that the 2,500 gallon limit is not exceeded? And are these large businesses going to be monitored to ensure that they don't abuse water rights? It's interesting to me, as I've sat on the Western States Water Council during the past year, that a large topic of discussion throughout the West includes the small, exempted, normally exempted water rights, the small industrial or small domestic water rights. And historically, there has been an opportunity for an exempted well where a person could drill a home well and irrigate up to a half acre or provide 2,500 gallons per day for a business without getting a water right and just getting a well drilling permit. However, around the western states, we're noticing that while individually these wells don't amount to much in terms of water, cumulatively they do. So perhaps it's time for western states to look at the cumulative impact and begin to regulate these kind of systems. However, we know that it's very difficult to measure and monitor thousands of systems, many systems. So what's happened so far is the legislature not wanting to get into the business of careful monitoring and regulation of each small use has stepped forward and provided money from the general fund to contribute to the overall water management to avoid the need for measuring small wells. So for a large well, uh, for example, a major industrial plant, they are measured and monitored. For a de minimis or exempted right, they are not. For one that might be on the edge, we could take a, a measurement if need be, but my expectation is we won't be in the business of monitoring those. It might just be a, a spot check approach. Good. Thank you. In your opinion, what are, what are your views on residential water metering? Well, residential water metering can be very effective in reducing the amount of use by residences. And, uh, we see that in, uh, uh, around the West, really. Some of our communities in Idaho are, are metered, some are not. In terms of the overall water supply, if there is a critical amount of water available to a municipality, then metering has been found to extend that water supply. However, in some areas, water that's used will go back into the, that's not used and, uh, in a sense, wasted, will go back into the groundwater system and become available for another use. So it's not always beneficial to the water supply to have metering. If a, if a crop is well watered, if additional water is provided, then to the extent there's interconnection, there's some benefit. In fact, part of the reason, uh, one-third of the reason we feel that the springs have gone down in the Thousand Springs area is due to increased efficiency by irrigators upstream in the, in the Eastern Snake Plain aquifer. So it's not a one-case, one-size-fits-all for monitoring and metering municipal uses, uh, uh, and I would say in some cases it makes sense, in some cases it doesn't make as much sense. Mm -hmm. How's that for a direct answer, David? <laughs> it's direct. It's direct. Let me ask you, are pumping rights sold differently than surface water rights? Any difference? Well, Idaho does consider a water right to be a property right. So there, there's been uh, some feeling in some cases that when a water right is on a piece of ground, it can't be moved, and, and not so. The law does provide for the opportunity to move water from one place to another and what's called the water right transfer. A water right transfer is intended to be uh, reviewed by our agency. It has to be advertised in most cases, and we, we review it with these concepts in mind. One, no, one item is in moving a water right, it can't be allowed to in, be enlarged. Secondly, it can't be allowed to adversely impact someone else. It can't be, it has to be in the public interest. There are a number of criteria that we use. So those laws do apply both to pumped water rights or groundwater rights, as well as surface water rights. Okay. There's no difference. Okay, thank you. Here's a question that, that will excite environmentalists. If irrigators and environmentalists 
could get together to agree that no Idaho water would be used to flush salmon if the Lower Snake River dams were removed, would your water department oppose those efforts? Again, another uncontroversial question here. I would have to say that uh, the agreement that we have right now in, in, in sending water downstream, which is really codified in the Nez Perce Agreement as a part of the Snake River Basin adjudication, is a long, hard-fought agreement that has been well worked on and has been generally accepted. To change from that agreement would take a great deal of effort. What happens in the future, I don't know. And one of the things that is happening right now is the amount of water that's going downstream to provide for anadromous fisheries, as required by the treaty, by the agreement, and also by Judge Redden's court in Seattle, is an amount of water that perhaps might not be enough. There is some question as to whether it is enough. So there's a question about the adequacy of the Nespers Agreement right now. So what the future holds, I don't know. I know there is an ongoing effort, perhaps, to look at the, the viability of the dams, but I'm, I'll tell you one thing. Uh, I don't know if Attila would have uh, taken this one on, but uh, I am not going to take that one on. <laughs> this is a, it's a statewide issue, and that's far above the, uh, an agency director to be involved with that one. What happens in the future on the dams, I don't know. All right, good. Fair enough. Thank you. Is it, is it possible for Magic Valley Canal Companies, the aquacultural businesses, to sell their water rights to the state as a possible solution to these problems, or have the water rights become too costly? Well, in, enlarging the, the pocket of potential solutions, a solution to a certain call is for that call to be satisfied in a number of ways, either, either by providing additional water or in some way to mitigate that the call itself. So the Idaho Water Resource Board has sent out a notice asking for proposals for spring owners to submit proposals or recommendations on what it would take to satisfy the call with the monetary compensation, for example. Some responses were received, not on all of the springs, a, a few they received. So that very much is in the cards as a potential on whether this, the cost would be too great, uh, I would guess that uh, you'll be seeing more about that this year. Uh, this potential solution is one that's on the table right now and is being considered. Here's a historical question that goes to the adequacy of the Idaho Constitution and the laws. In your view, can the new water demands that were not anticipated during the framing of the Idaho Constitution be handled by management alone? or? Do you think that the demands and the priorities of today will require changes in our law and the Constitution? There are some who feel that the appropriation doctrine, which is in the law, in the Constitution and in the statutes, needs to be changed. And that appropriation doctrine is basically first in time is first in right. However, in my experience, we have seen modifications to the statutes that have enabled the appropriation doctrine to remain solid and very active and viable in Idaho. So it would, I would be surprised if the Constitution has changed in this manner. I've seen around the state, and it's been my experience, to, to see situations where solutions are developed within the parameters of the appropriation doctrine as established in the statutes in the Constitution. So I would be surprised to see a major change. Now, that said, We'll have to be better managers over the years. I expect that we will be, grow and improve. We'll have to do a better job of conservation. That's a very important aspect of the 21st century. And those, are not to be, those two issues are not to be diminished. There are some who think that those two issues are all that are available for the 21st century. In Idaho, we do have the potential for storage, perhaps, that's not available in other areas. As a follow-up question, would you, would you advocate a change in the Constitution? Has anybody in this room heard our governor speak? Do you think he would look for a change in our Constitution? <laughs> uh, my, my response would be the, the clear guidance by, our, by uh, my boss, uh, Governor Otter, is uh, to really support the Constitution of the state and the United States. And in this particular arena, in the water arena, I really don't see a need to 
personally to change the Constitution, and my expectation is our governor would be very adverse to changing the Constitution. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> Given the tremendous growth that Idaho is experiencing, does your department project the time frame when the demands for water will exceed the supply? The demand versus supply fortunately can be helped on a good year, uh, like this year could be, 2008 could be a good year where supply is sufficient for the demands better than last year. However, in the long term, it appears that we have more demands than supply. That's why we need to look at our infrastructure. We're finding out that we can survive one year of drought, and that's about all now, uh, in, the, in the upper snake eastern snake plain aquifer. Around the state, we, we have curtailments every year of various water rights that are more junior, and the supply is not enough to meet all the demands presently, and that will be exacerbated in the future. Uh, David, in your view, should, should cities have a mitigation plan, and what might be some options that you would suggest? The answer, the short answer to that question is yes, a city should have a mitigation plan. It's the right time for a city to be involved, and I see uh, representatives from uh, various cities here today. I'm uh, pleased to see uh, this kind of broad representation at this particular discussion. It's been my experience that through the comprehensive aquifer management process that cities' involvement have been very important. We do have two mayors. Uh, on, in that group that have been very actively involved. Municipalities, cities do need to have uh, mitigation plans. How do they do that? That's normally through working with their engineers and attorneys and working with those that have water around them. There are ways to do this. And my expectation is by the end of 2008, we'll have some nice examples of using some new techniques to develop these mitigation plans. Okay. Thank you. You have described surface uh, storage projects as optional. Uh, what sort of options exist for underground storage? Well, around the nation, we've seen that in many cases, underground storage is the most cost-effective. We have, in some cases, created voids by pumping, and those voids can, in some cases, be filled with water that's used for recharge. In other cases, we're augmenting what was naturally there. Perhaps there was some space uh, left there naturally. So. We have a couple of ways to augment the aquifers. Uh, as I mentioned, one is incidental, where, where we're augmenting the aquifers every day, either by the river or by canals. In addition, the managed recharge is an option, and we're looking at all kinds of ways around the state. The, the camp process advisory committee is looking at ways to enhance aquifer management. There's uh, uh, through recharge, there's a meeting this afternoon along that line. So. I would say that infrastructure, the existing infrastructure can be used, recharging early and late in the season through canal company uh, systems that are already existing. We did that last fall and recharged about 26,000 acre feet of water from the Twin Falls canal, Northside Canal Company. In addition, we'll be enhancing the recharge opportunities in the future. Here's another salmon question. Wouldn't breaching of the, of the lower snake dams reduce the water we're now sending downstream for the salmon? There are at least two people in this room in favor of breaching, it sounds like to me. And, uh, and those two people are, are some of many around the state that are in favor of looking at this option. So uh, would, would breaching uh, the dams enhance uh, the, the opportunity uh, for the salmon without the need to send down water? You know, uh, I'm not going to weigh in on that one. <laughs> uh, there certainly are two schools of thought, and that's, a, that's one of those questions that uh, we could debate as another topic, and I would suggest that be another topic for your city club session, David. Okay. All right. Thank you. A forecast for us, if you will, our opportunities to work with our sister states to protect Western water rights, and describe for us the challenges that you face. Well, one of the very interesting aspects of this job has been to work with other states more. I've had opportunities through my career to work with other western states, but I can give you one example of how working with other western states makes a difference. We use in Idaho remote sensing now, and we're one of the leaders in the west in using remote sensing to uh, use satellite images to determine where water is used and how much through an infrared band on uh, a satellite called Landsat 5 and Landsat 7. We have two of them up there that are working right now. 
When Landsat 8 is launched, we want to make sure that a thermal band is on that satellite so we can continue to use this technology. And we've tried for the last two or three years as a state to encourage NASA to include a thermal band on this next satellite. And we weren't getting very far. Last year, we endorsed the aid of the Western States Water Council. Uh, they came behind this with uh, letters and staff effort, and it looks like a possibility. Some water was actually, some money was actually appropriated for this purpose for NASA to keep the fire burning on this issue. We wouldn't have gotten there without the rest of the Western states. That's why when we meet with the Western States Water Council in March in Washington, D.C., it's very important that we be hand-in-hand -hand with our Western state neighbors, assisting them in their projects as they assist ours, uh, us in our project. It is very important. Okay. Thank you. Uh, do you believe that the state should incentivize the alternate agricultural water strategies where applicable, such as drip irrigation? The various efficiencies in water application uh, provide an, a very interesting aspect to Idaho water. On one hand, drip irrigation, for example, reduces the amount of, of water used at a, at a crop location. The other side of that coin is that by changing a system to make it more efficient, less water is added for recharge for the aquifer, so less water becomes available for other users. So in some, in some areas, uh, for example, in California, where, where water dripping down goes to the Salton Sea, an acre foot saved by a more efficient practice is an acre foot made available to the water users. In Idaho, an acre foot saved by a drip irrigation process, for example, is an acre foot, uh, uh, to the extent that the water would have uh, percolated down, is an acre foot less available for another user. So while efficiency is good on one hand, there can be secondary impacts. And again, with drip irrigation efficiency, I would say it's not categorically good. It can be good in some cases. Thank you. Could you explain more fully the concept of conjunctive management and the rationale that stands behind that? Well, that's the conjunctive management aspect is that relationship between groundwater and surface water rights. And to historically, uh, since for the last 140 years, we've been, we've been administering surface water rights on a first-in-time, first-in-right. So if there are two water users from a stream, and there's only enough water for one water user, what do we do in Idaho? We curtail the junior to provide for the senior. First in time is first in right. That's very straightforward as among surface water users. But when a well comes in, and the well is pumping nearby perhaps, and is impacting the surface water, we, we've historically called the well groundwater as a totally separate source. Only in the last 20 years or so have Idaho and the western states begun to recognize that Groundwater is impacting surface water, and that joint relationship between groundwater and surface water is called a conjunctive relationship. Now, as we administer this relationship from the department, we call that conjunctive administration, or how we relate the groundwater to the surface water. Conjunctive management is management of, of the two. Sometimes it's good to have a dual system, where sometimes the surface water is used and other times the, the groundwater is used, so that's normally how we think of conjunctive management. So it's the relationship between groundwater and surface water that really is the big administrative challenge of the century. Thank you. Have, have you seen much success in, in the use of cloud seeding? To my astonishment, uh, cloud seeding is active in about 50 separate projects around the western United States. I found this out through the Western States Water Council. Wyoming has an $8 million project on cloud seeding, and Wyomingans are pretty conservative. Uh, it's fair to say, I think. So I was very surprised to hear that kind of an effort uh, in our sister state. And cloud seeding is gaining momentum in Idaho. In the Payette Basin, presently, we have cloud seeding by Idaho Power Company. In Fremont County, there's an effort to increase cloud seeding. The study and use of cloud seeding is beginning to grow in Idaho, and I, I think it has a future. We've just joined the Western State Association of Cloud Seeding uh, uh, States to learn more about the process so we don't reinvent the wheel, but I would expect that we'll be seeing more cloud seeding in the future. In your opinion, why are the Magic Valley water users reticent to recognize recharge as a partial solution to at least a factor in mitigation? Well, I, I would say that in my experience, the Magic Valley 
water users in the Twin Falls area have made it very clear that they don't see recharge as a one-size-fits-all panacea to the water water supply issues. That said, there there is a general agreement that recharge is part of the solution. So while we need to recharge and do the best with the water that we have to replenish the aquifer, that is likely not going to be enough in itself. So in my experience, that's where the Magic Valley water users have uh, been careful to point out that recharge alone isn't enough. Several audience members have wondered uh, this question. How much more senior are the water rights in the Magic Valley than in other parts of the state? Well, the seniority of a water right really depends on the reach. For example, in the Bigwood River system, if, if you have an 1885 water right, it's not very good. If you have an 1883 water right, that's pretty good. It's on most of the time. In the Snake River system, uh, down where at Milner, if you have a 1900 water right, that's pretty good. That's what Twin Falls Canal Company has. So that's the water right that really is putting the call on upstream. And that's why, for the most part, the groundwater users are, for the most part, all junior to that senior right. If the Twin Falls Canal Company water right were 19 80, then, there, then some of the wells up here would not be so much in danger of being curtailed. But it's that 1900 water right that's making the call for the most part. And it's not just Twin Falls Canal Company that's making the call, it's the band of seven organizations in the Surface Water Coalition. But that really is the key water right most years. Okay. Thank you. You're going to like this question. Wouldn't it be wiser for the state to spend $20 million in the purchase of water rights currently owned by trout farmers rather than to investigate the aquifer as the governor would like us to pursue? Well, that's, that really is uh, the, the case that that's exactly the, the question that the legislature is dealing with right now. So really uh, uh, several senators have said, is it wise to be conducting additional studies? And my response to the senator who brought this question up in committee this week was that on one hand, uh, it, is, it is true that water can be purchased. On the other hand, for managing water in a basin, we really can't manage groundwater and surface water without a model. The judge looked at this very carefully through the hearing process and fully endorsed the former director's opinion, saying that our model on the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer is not perfect, but Without it, what do we do? How do we manage this conjunctive relationship between groundwater and surface water? The $20 million uh, amount would provide models for many places around the state which are crying out for management, just like the Eastern Snake Plain Aquifer is right now. As an example, the Teton River Basin, which is on the list, uh, is, one, is an area where there's rampant growth, and I'm getting calls and requests to curtail all the water uses and manage water. We really have no tool to do that with without a model. So in the, in the long term, uh, while purchasing water rights would solve an immediate problem at one location, uh, we need to invest in models to have an, a capability for management. Thank you. I want to say that you've been very efficient in answering all these questions. We've gone through all of them by my count. And I want to say at the, as we reach the end of our appointed time here together, that the stability of water in this room has been adequately controlled by the director because if you look at that glass on his podium, we have not lost a single drop. And unlike the concern that Gerald Ford had when he was running for the presidency and he never wanted to have a glass of water on his podium, I congratulate the director for the confidence to have that water in front of him. Thank you all for joining us.